Studying dependent origination, um, because it's so central, it ends up carrying a lot of understanding that the Buddha wanted us to understand. So dependent origination gives us more clarity on our fundamental ignorance and misunderstanding. What are we misunderstanding? It shows a more clear linking between our misunderstandings, our ignorance, craving, and suffering. It shows the partial workings of karma. It shows conditionality. And conditionality means that we are living in a realm that is born out of the conditions we find ourselves in. So your, your body is experiencing heat because there's heat on in the room, visual experience because there's lights on in the room. These, your, the flow of your experience is really the bubbling up of the conditions you find yourself bubbling up within, and conditions constantly change. It gives the teaching on emptiness. This process of dependent origination is not happening to you when we really see it, it's actually trying to describe why there is no lasting you at all. Where all these yous are coming from. What's bubbling up here that keeps bubbling up a sense of yourself. And if you believe in the multiple life model, why we keep taking multiple life forms. And if you believe in a one life model, why we take on so many different identities um, throughout one life. Just out of curiosity, um, how many of you are open to the multiple life model? And how many of you are, does that make you get squint and get a little skeptical? <laughs> That's fine, because I find myself on both sides of that as well. <laughs> this, is, <clears throat> this is the fundamental teaching on non-self, dependent origination, showing why selves come about but there is no actual lasting self walking around uh, experiencing life. Dependent origination is the one great engine of samsara and rebirth. Luckily, there aren't two. It's not dependent origination and one just as powerful. Dependent origination is it. It's the one great engine of our suffering. And because of it, it, it describes how to skillfully use the Buddha's path. I had a friend in college who was a, an amazing auto mechanic, and he specialized in German cars. And I had a little <clears throat> uh, Jetta, VW Jetta, which is, he, used to, he could work on Porsche engines. So whenever he got in my car, I was like, oh, it's so cute. <laughs> You're in this little VW Jetta. But by the time I picked him up and we got to the restaurant where I was taking him out to dinner, <clears throat> he would have diagnosed eight problems in my car. And then we would fix them. It was kind of fun for him, and and we could fix them. But I was astounded uh, that he understood the car as well as he did. And he said, there's no such thing as an old car, just a car that hasn't been fixed, and a car that people give up on. And so it just changed my understanding of what it meant to actually own a car and to see into it. It was wonderful. This is what dependent origination is. It's the sort of the German auto mechanic textbook uh, to the mind. It's a lot of information that shows some things, maybe more so than you would ever need to really know to, na- to be happier. But it is um, a very detailed map. Um, 
where the the experts go to uh, analyze what's going on when they see suffering. So <clears throat> dependent origination has two key features. Most of you will know of dependent origination as the 12 links of, uh, that cause suffering. But just as equally to those 12 links, a big part of dependent origination is a teaching on conditionality. And we'll get into that. That's one part of dependent origination, the conditionality. Because of past conditions, and the things that nothing, nothing is static, but because of previous conditions, we find ourselves in this present moment. This present moment did not just happen. It didn't just spontaneously arise. This previous moment came about because of immediate past conditions, but also long past conditions. Someone put this building together 20 years ago. That's part of the conditions of why we're here. Uh, if you believe in evolution, um, we are sitting here and we have spines that are infused with calcium because of our fish ancestors uh, 300 million years ago. That's what, part of the conditions of why we're here. Um, there's a long chain of conditions that go back, way back in time and also just, even just a second ago that are causing our present conditions. So that's in this teaching on dependent origination. <clears throat> How we respond to present conditions set up future events, future results. So the, because of the past, we find ourselves in the present. How we respond to the present influences what comes in the future. This is a little different than how maybe most of us are enjoying this tradition because so much of it is arriving in the present moment. And then if the more sort of at ease you are in the present moment, the less you have to be worried about the past or the future. Arriving at the present moment is a great relief, but it doesn't necessarily um, fully liberate you. It's just you've liberated yourself in those moments that you find yourself present. Understanding the flow of past conditions that have led you here and that how you respond here um, will have a big influence over what comes next. That is a deepening in, in your understanding. And we have to first be present and then watch how present time flows where we can begin to see this relationship, the conditionality. We'll get more into this, but does anybody have a question about this? Yeah, we'll start over here. I, it might be more of a comment and then just curious if you have a response, but it seems like there's something too about, I haven't uh, been with this teaching in many years, but it seems like there's something about it emphasizing a kind of working through that might undercut spiritual bypassing. Hmm. Like it's such a relief to finally have a vehicle to calm down and be present, but it's not the same thing as working through sort of relative, um, more stuck states of mind. So there is that, we might get to that. And so ask that question again later if we haven't come into it. But there is a teaching here about not just getting calm and then hoping calm is going to do be all that you need. Mm -hmm. There actually is a deeper understanding that comes once we know how to be calm and present, 
we then do deeper work. Mm -hmm. In my languaging that I learned from my teachers in Burma, mindfulness helps us be calm and present. Vipassana is where we deepen our understanding because we are calm and present. So the work of insight practice can't really begin until we're intimate with the flow of present time experience. Just being intimate with the flow of present time experience, you might, be, you might have a lot of things under the rug that you haven't really dealt with and they come out later. Mm -hmm. That's the work of insight practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any, Thanks. Any? Um, I was wondering, a lot of times I've heard about conditionality as like personal psychology and personal instead of the the bigger scope as right. you're describing it now. Mm -hmm. So and I'm so I'm curious about if conditionality is taught in both in in two, in those two different ways or if they if it's sort of all encapsulated into like a meta understanding of what that means. Does that make yeah. sense? In this tradition it's seen that the emphasis was put on the individual to wake themselves up out of their confusion. And so a lot of the teachings are on individual systems. Yet you can step back and see um, an ocean is made up of many drops, a river is made up of many drops, and so we have collective conditionality, we have collective misunderstandings, and those lead to collective sufferings. And so the same teaching, once you see it individually, then you can begin to see how you can begin to see it collectively. And we are collectively creating conditions. Due to our past conditioning, we have collectively created this moment. We have collectively agreed to sit the way we are and to do this with our time. And <clears throat> it's an ongoing collective collaboration. And so is our social, uh, our larger social sphere. And so is our, how we're treating the planet. Um, I don't think our collective choices have impacted the solar system yet, besides having some moon landers and some <coughs> little, little vehicles driving around Mars. <laughs> That's about as much as we've done to the other planets. But this one, we're having a big impact collectively on the actual earth from our sense of understanding and misunderstanding we're starting to have large huge impacts when we get into it that there are some deeper levels that are also interesting um, but I want to get a little deeper in before we get that and then um, let's come here so as you mentioned there's um, if I'm doing my individual practice like vipassana and mindfulness, how does this come in while I'm sitting? Like right. understanding of con conditionality, how does, is it a backdrop uh, along which I understand like a system outside of me or a set of conditions? Is that an insight or is it like, how does it, what am I doing with this right. while I'm sitting? So <clears throat> if you can get yourself fairly calm in practice, and then somebody um, sniffles next to you, and the idea comes up, they should just blow their nose and get it done with. <laughs> they shouldn't just keep sniffling. You might believe that your irritation is, is accurate, but that you got irritated 
actually says something about you. So certain people are easy to draw into irritation and certain people it's difficult to draw them into irritation. That says something about you, how you are conditioned. So if you understand your conditioning, then you can be un understand what work do you have to do inside to show how past patterning, you've, you've calmed it down, but then in the right circumstances, under the right conditions, those dormant patterns become activated. So becoming calm is great, but what you've done is you've taken all your patterns and made them dormant. And there are whole movements of meditation that just work on putting more and more layers of covering over their dormant patterns, hoping that just with the power of their concentration and samadhi, they can snuff out dormant patterns. The Buddha's insight was that you can do that and you can do that for possibly for a lifetime, that you can be reborn into realms where they live trillions and trillions and trillions of our lives with their dormant patterns dormant but not actually eradicated. And so then it takes Vipassana to get in there and actually uproot these dormant patterns. That takes insight. So if you're sitting there calm and you begin to become irritated because somebody's sniffling, you can then calm yourself down and go back to well-being. Or you can then turn and say, what is the basis of my irritation? Because this person is sniffling. No. No, that's actually optional, but it has come into my mind. Why has this dormant pattern reawoken? Because this person's sniffling. And you'll do that over and over and over until you begin to say, what's going on here, really? I like it a certain way. I'm clinging to that certain way. I have beliefs about what's appropriate. I think I know how reality should work. <laughs> Um, there's cravings, there's clingings, there's longings, there's, there's hopings for peace. And the sniffling person is interrupting that. But the real suffering is actually brewing here, but the mind is projecting the solutions out here. This person should go, blow their nose once, I think I'll be very kind, bow to them, smile, could you blow your nose once? Trying to solve your irritation outside, but never actually having looked at that fact that you're brewing your own irritation. So that's where you're, you're doing the work of vipassana, insight work, into your own heart and mind. If you do that and say, wow, I am, I am the source of my own suffering, and this is long work, I own it. Could you please blow your nose once? It's, I'm irritated, it's not your fault, but it's making it very hard for me to work on my stuff over here. <laughs> That's a different exchange. That person won't feel condemned or blamed or attacked. You're just trying to help everybody. But you've already committed yourself. The suffering is inside. It's not outside. So you won't keep trying to arrange the outside world. They say you can cover the world in leather or put on a pair of shoes. So this is the work of... That's how you can do that. You can begin looking into what patterns beautiful patterns and unproductive patterns have I cultivated? And can I see the ground that they're growing out of? 
If you grow carrots in soggy soil, they rot. If you grow carrots in sandy soil, they can grow deep and strong. You want carrots to grow in better soil. Anger grows out of certain beliefs. Anger does not thrive in and of itself. It feeds on how you're viewing the world. Love uh, grows on how you're viewing the world. It grows out of conditions, supportive conditions. So that begins to begin to see it's a little deeper work than just calming yourself. The Buddhism I first got introduced to, if you actually taste your cookie, it's a better experience. Be more present, 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 present. So the first 10 years of my life, just like, yeah, let's just be more present with each other. It's all about being present and not so much the deeper work. And that's where this teaching takes us, really looking at these underlying patterns and forces that get us caught. One question on the way back. Thank you for uh, for explaining dependent origination and the the longings inside you. And when you said that, I connected it to what I've been learning about nonviolent communication, which mm. is universal human needs. So I'm wondering, could you connect what you've learned about the Buddha's teachings and the Dharma and how, what is the most enlightened way to acknowledge our own needs and meet them that is also skillful? Yeah, and in terms of nonviolent communication, it's interesting because they do validate some very basic needs. And <clears throat> this tradition gets, I can see the validity of that. And it makes me actually anxious when I was being trained in nonviolent communication that these needs could be so um, unquestioned, that the very need nature, but I think they go well together because um, how you're looking at yourself on some level is actually important to understand what it is you're asking for. And it's possible what you're asking for is, is completely valid on some level but that you're dissatisfied is a deeper understanding that most people won't get to in their daily lives and most people won't explore where is the need coming from. So psychologically it's important to understand what am I asking for from my environment and how can I do that skillfully? That's just skillful navigation. Mindfulness can help you understand it because you're seeing the flow of present time experiences more clearly. But if that need is deep and hard to meet and comes up over and over and over and over, if you don't have a meditation practice, for example, you won't really be able to see where's, what's, what's the hole this is coming from? What's underneath this that keeps this need so urgent, so persistent? Psychology might explore what's underneath that need, and then this type of analysis also might get deeper into where, where are all these needs coming from? So I think it is skillful, just like uh, there's a way to drive a car that's skillful. Dependent origination wouldn't be the tool I would use necessarily to teach me how to drive a car better, except to explore my attitude. It's there, but actually when to shift and gas and brake, this is not the teaching that's most useful for that. Nonviolent communication is a beautiful system to work on where there is conflict and understanding the nature of the conflict on one level. And if you go deeper into it, you'll find that 
you have less needs because you're actually more content. You have a more um, indigenous sense of contentment, which means that you're more authentically malleable. So your needs are less volatile and less urgent. That can come through this practice. It's not by, by numbing out your needs, but actually going into your system and so alleviating the inflammation of your suffering that your needs become uh, less and less compelling and urgent because there's, and then at that point, it's easier to work with you and communicate with you because you're not bumping into so many um, volatile and painful needs. Thanks. So half the teaching of dependent origination are these 12 links, but the other half is conditionality. So here we have the 12 links linking ignorance to suffering. And again, just for a sense of pictorial memory, um, visual memory, it's put in a wheel. The wheel was never described in the original teachings. It was always a list. And this wheel that links um, these 12 links together over and over and over doesn't come out of the Pali Canon, doesn't come out of the Buddha's teachings. It was a later addition to show how this was the wheel of samsara. And so they end up linking these things, but you have these 12 links here. I've colored some, some of them. Some of them I've left in Pali because of what we're gonna talk about during the day. I don't find the English um, translations that useful. So you're gonna to have to learn a little bit of Pali today. <laughs> or not, just be exposed to this teaching and don't, don't worry, don't get caught in it. But it starts with avija up at the top. That's the word gets translated as uh, misunderstanding. And it goes through sankharas, which are the mental habits, mental formations, mental patterns. Um, they can also be verbal and they can also be physical patterns. That leads to consciousness. We'll go through these 12 links more carefully, but just to show, um, usually this wheel has the 12 links on the outside and then can some type of conditionality on the inside when you see the, the, the wheel of becoming, this is called. Yeah, there's a question. It's going to come again, that the particular one. So conditionality, let's get into this a little deeper. And then we'll get into this, we'll talk about it, and then we'll actually um, practice so that we can um, see this in the flow of our experience. Dependent origination often is talked about in how we create our suffering, but it's not often talked about that this is the same tool of how we liberate ourselves. So conditionality has two factors. All these lists break down into smaller lists, break down into other lists. So there's this Pali word, pachaya, which means dependently arisen. Anger dependently arises upon being triggered by something. So it doesn't arise on its own, it has a dependency. This is called the, the pachaya um, connection between the 12 links. When this is, that is, from the arising of this comes the arising of that. So when you look at the, uh, the Pali um, version of the Buddha's teachings, he'll link all these 12 links with this word pachaya between them. But then he'll follow in the same discourse with this word niroda. And niroda means ceasing. 
And so when this isn't, that isn't, from the secession of this comes the secession of that. If you remove what's causing the anger, the anger tends to evaporate. The anger tends to leave. And so you can either try to stop the anger or you can stop what's feeding the anger. Because they have a dependency, you now have two strategies when anger arises. Work on the anger directly or work on uh, ceasing, diminishing what's feeding the anger. This, these two directions are important to understand in terms of getting into the 12 links. They all have a dependency built into them. And when let go one way, that dependency fosters uh, the next one becoming stronger. So if you start with strong ignorance, you're going to end up with strong suffering. But as you weaken ignorance, you end up weakening the suffering it can produce. It has a pachaya direction and it has a naroda direction. So pachaya is poly for the forward leading and naroda is sort of how we end up using this teaching to liberate ourselves learning about how to bring something to conclusion or seeing from the arising and passing that whatever you're attached to arises and passes and therefore it's not worth clinging to. And so seeing the cessation of whatever you're connected to undermines the clinging to it. That's also the way Naroda, this Pali word comes in, secession, and um, plays a role in untangling dependent origination. I'll give you this example in terms of malaria. <laughs> so if you grew up in a place where there was malaria, it might have always been around and you might have ever never necessarily questioned it. Um, when the um, foreign soldiers would go to foreign lands and, uh, and find that they had this mysterious illness, malaria, it wasn't understood what was causing it. But the name... Malaria means bad air, malaria. So they knew it had something to do with being around bad air and people were getting ill and they thought maybe it was just smelling the bad air. But if you don't know the actual vector of the illness, you just know that there's some link with bad air, but people are getting sick and we can't intervene. A huge insight is when you actually see what's causing the malaria, and that's the many mosquito bites. So you can either try to treat the symptoms of the malaria or you can begin going down into what is causing, what's conditioning the malaria. And if you can intervene there, you don't have to deal with all of the symptoms. It's actually very hard to treat people with malaria. It's getting easier, but for the last many thousands of years, um, you can just work with the symptoms. But if you actually know the actual vector that's causing it or conditioning it, then mosquito nets and bug repellent has a huge impact on the amount of malaria people are suffering from. So it's conditionality. Malaria doesn't arrive on its own. It arises due to underlying conditions. And then now you have two strategies to bring alleviation, alleviate the suffering that has arisen, but begin intervening on what's causing it. Mosquitoes are silent most for the most part. There's so many of them. You can just keep working on the mosquito level of the problem. Or, why are there so many mosquitoes? Why are there so many mosquitoes? Because there's stagnant water. Stagnant water 
If there's a lot of it, you'll have a lot of mosquitoes. If you have a lot of mosquitoes, you'll have a lot of malaria. Now we have three strategies, three strategies to deal with malaria, deal with the symptoms that have come, do some type of physical barrier or wear bug repellent for the mosquitoes, and if you can get this water flowing again where it's become stagnant, then the mosquitoes don't have as much of a breeding ground. And because of this, you don't find much rampant malaria in the United States. But the first uh, people coming over, the first colonists, um, suffered from malaria. And they thought that maybe Jamestown, the first, one of the first settlements, weak, got so weakened because of malaria, they couldn't live through their first winter. So it used to be a big problem. But where there was stagnant water, they made it move. The little easy grab here is, rather than believing in permanence, get it flowing again. <laughs> get yourself in a relationship to a flowing life, taking out the stagnancy. Mosquito here is craving. It's the, sort of the, the analogy. Because of stagnancy, that leads to craving. Because of the craving, we end up suffering. If you can actually see the impermanent nature, the flowing nature of experience, we tend not to crave as much because things are moving. You can, they're ungraspable. And then we don't deal with the suffering that it produces. So in the, in the Pachaya direction, big swamps, many mosquitoes, lots of malaria. But because there's a dependency, malaria is actually weak. If it were not dependent upon anything, it would just be a curse that came down from unknown sources and there was no intervention. It's this actual dependency that makes it weak. And because of that, we can go in the Naroda direction. If you cease the mosquito bites, you cease the malaria. Malaria is not so powerful that it's transcended mosquitoes. It's dependent upon mosquitoes. In fact, a certain couple of species of it as powerful as it is, as bad as the outcome is, it actually has a weakness in its dependency. So mosquito nets, bug repellent, that does a huge impact on the spread of malaria. The mosquitoes themselves have a dependency. They are not some type of unintervening force in the universe. They have a dependency. They have a dependency upon stagnant water. That's why there aren't so many mosquitoes in the middle of a desert why there are many in swampy areas, why there are many in Asia after the monsoons, because there's so much water that settled until that stagnant water has either gone down the rivers or so soaking into the land. There's tremendous breeding grounds. During the monsoons, the water's flowing, so the mosquitoes aren't so bad. It tends to be just after the monsoons where there are huge puddles, um, huge ponds, temporary ponds, and mosquitoes burst out, and then they tend to dissipate um, and there's other factors that impact mosquito populations, but this is a big one, the stagnant water. Take away the stagnant water, you take away the mosquitoes, at least they reduce. Take away the mosquitoes, you take away the malaria. That's the Naroda direction. This is important to understand in terms of dependent origination. The 12 links are important, but knowing their dependency is uh, the powerful part of dependent origination. It's the dependent side of the equation, dependent origination. Any questions about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Um, well, I just wanted to ask, I think that I find for myself that a lot of my frustration comes from when people express their own suffering to me, and then I, I try to provide a new perspective for them to try to help them work through it and make them understand that it is their ex it's not their external conditions, but something that they can work on within themselves. And if they're really grasping onto that, you know, they become um, sometimes kind of volatile and really resist uh, that. And it's something that gets me, something that I find frustrating, and it gets me into a bit of a... Um, more angry place and I was just wondering if you could s speak about that and, and how that relates to dependent origination. Sure. Would you tap that microphone twice? I want to make sure that's on. Okay, yeah. Otherwise I'd repeat the question. <clears throat> so it's true that ultimately our suffering, the source of it is inside. But you wouldn't stand a chance of liberating yourself, if you were so agitated by your external environment, you wouldn't be able to do the work necessary to liberate yourself from that. And so it's, it's a both-and. If you understand the ultimate goal, it's a both-and. We need support to develop positive momentum so we can begin to turn this, these patterns around and open them up. And it's not just enough to say, shut that suffering down, um, go inside and shut it down, because it could be there's just too much that's agitating, and it's not directly accessible, and you can't build upon it. And so there are, there are times that we have to do external work. There's times that we have to do psychological work, that the psychological patterning is so tough that just asking it to stop and be quiet isn't really useful that you actually have to do some healing work. And at that point, you can come to a more authentic stillness inside that's not about repression, but you work through things and there's stillness inside. And then from there, you can do deeper work. So it ends up being both and. And <clears throat> you can look at, um, that's a, on a personal level, if you look at something on a more macroscopic uh, scale, you could say, to people who are suffering from social injustice. Your suffering is from within. I've heard this from the Buddha. So go find yourself a nice place and liberate yourself. It's one, you, you know, it's infuriating to hear that. <laughs> and two, it's not actually productive. There's so much adversity externally that there's no chance to begin doing that inner work. The Tibetans who have been um, imprisoned by the Chinese, they're in a situation, many of them, people who have started meditation practice, where they're, they can't really affect their external circumstances. So when in prison, they do as much internal work as they can. But collectively, we are creating our society, often unconsciously, not realizing it is a constant flow of choices that makes... San Francisco look like San Francisco, that makes North America look like North America. It's through many, 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 many choices that we have these patterns. And so <clears throat> even though, for, I guess, for some people, the message that 
there's work you could do inside that would really address the suffering you're feeling. That's within reach, and that's useful information. For other people, that message bounces off. And for whatever reason, your job can't be to try to convert people to your views, or even these views. And I have many family members that have undergone 25 years of subtle sneak attacks, the the Trojan horses, (laughs) storming the gates. And it's not where their mind is at. But over time, they've learned some, but they've never wanted to learn on this level. So we can always be trying to educate and interact. Um, But if you're getting frustrated with it, some of that frustration comes from your own attachment to how you wish the world actually worked. And I wish the world actually worked much better. If I could design it, it would be much better working, but it probably wouldn't be, but you know, at least to me, it feels like it would be. Um, there was a, <clears throat> after I'd spent a year as a monk in Burma, I went traveling through India for several months and I was just about to leave. I was a few days from leaving. I was in this town called Rishikesh. And this, I was staying in a small hotel. And a tourist came, a German tourist came. And I knew he was brand new before he said anything because all his clothing was still perfectly white. <laughs> and my, my clothing had been, I'd had been hand washing it for a year or so. Just, was, I just, nothing I had was as white as what he was wearing. And also he had this like optimism. <laughs> <laughs> That, like, I had my freedom, he had his optimism, and I would take my freedom over his optimism any day. But I also was optimistic, and we sort of talked in all the places he was going to go, and I was giving him advice, and so we spent a couple of hours, and then it got late, and we both went into our rooms, which were right next to each other. And just as we were lying down to sleep, um, I started hearing this, these hammer blows uh, on metal. So it was a metal hammer hammering something metal, and I remember there was construction next door, and that there was some person's job who had the graveyard shift of straightening bent metal to be used the next day. And whatever metal could be straightened, he would, could sell back to the people building the hotel. And I knew it was going to be an all-night process. And I'd learned there's no intervening. There's no intervening on this. You don't get your way here. But you can rest between hammer blows. <laughs> So I was just resting between hammer blows. And at some point he's going to take a break and I'll get a little more sleep. But this is a long night. So about 20 minutes in of, do, of doing this work, I thought, oh, this is a long night. These are tough conditions. But my freedom is not wishing it were different. I've already learned that. Burma has taught me that. So my freedom is in settling into these conditions. And then from the pitch black, I heard this scream. For love of God, shut up! <laughs> and I was like, you have been initiated on your actual path. Your, your optimism of what your spiritual path is going to look like is being shattered to what your actual spiritual path is, which is you are going to have to learn to sleep between hammer blows, get your rest between hammer blows, because for love of God, he will not shut up. <laughs> And there actually was a pause because it was such a loud, strange cry in the dark. And I was like, 
could that actually have worked? <laughs> and then right away the hammer blow started again and I was like, this is, you know, you can suffer or be free and the freedom is not about getting what you want. It's about learning to settle into the way things are. So ultimately, it is in that direction, um, but other people may or may not want to hear that, maybe not able to hear that. And then everybody in this room, until you're fully free, has limits of what you could take before the conditions are overwhelming and your dormant leftover um, patterns will erupt. You know, until they're gone, they always have a chance to erupt. I just want to comment on One second for the microphone. You know, I think it's really important that you know, we recognize the level of attachment and investment yeah. is going to play a very significant role in our response. You know, someone who, for example, chooses to sell something that they're not particularly invested in whether they sell it or not sell it <laughs> is ultimately in a much better position than somebody who's trying to sell something where they need yeah. to sell it, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think the same thing occurs in terms of, you know, in our relationships in general, you know, to the degree we're invested in the change, yeah. right? It's going to impact exactly how we respond to it to the degree that we're sort of liberated, if you will, or free from it. Right. So. Yeah, over here. Temple, you, you asked at the beginning a, a sort of inquiry about who had an inclination towards the idea of reincarnation existing or not. And I'm, and I'm just wondering, how does, it seems to me, and I just, uh, without having gone through the 12, 12 steps yet, that it'd be very, I couldn't understand this process without having a belief in, in karma and karma as it relates to reincarnation. Because mm -hmm. where does things, where does, where does the ending become the new beginning at some point? Uh, especially the origin of our uh, of this body mind mm -hmm. and this as we know it now. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to sort of like what's how much um, faith there is required in some uh, of into that, and uh, and where do we find direct experience of that right. to incline a understanding of this wheel? Right. So we'll get a little bit more in that when we look at the the twelve links, but I can point that a little bit here and now. Um, I'll start with an analogy first. I used to teach uh, whitewater canoeing to pretty young kids, some kids as young as 10, 12, and older. And you'd never start them in the, in the thickest, most powerful part of the river. This wouldn't stand a chance. So you'd find a smaller version of the same forces, and they could learn to navigate that and increase their skill level so they could handle more and more powerful situations with this underlying skill. Dependent origination, I believe, was really being held as a multiple life model. And I think at the time that the Buddha taught in his culture, I believe his insights, I think he was quite comfortable with this really being a, trillions and trillions of lives have put into our, um, into our possibility many types of karmas that can that can come back to life, that can um, go, that can re-germinate. 
And some people at his time were trying to burn out, exhaust their karma as a way to become ultimately free. And he said, there's no way. You have mountains of good karma, mountains of bad karma. There's no getting to the bottom of it just by... And he was trying to, for six years, burn out. That's one of the things he was doing, was trying to burn out, his, exhaust his bad karma. So I think this really is a map that can go up to this large scale of the multiple lives. We're going to look at it more, the default conversation, if you don't bring it up, tends to go to the psychological model because as a cultural, as a culture, we're more comfortable and we'll have more like, aha, I think I get it. And so really, in a small, uh, all the forces of powerful river can be found in a small stream. All the forces that lead to multiple lives can be found in one life. You can see this playing out in why you argue people, why you let go of the argument, the types of things that you're brewing here. And then you can use this map to navigate this life. And the same map, the same forces end up causing multiple lives. But to have a, a true understanding of karma um, as it's uh, traditionally held, you do need to you do need to have a multiple life model for why certain things are ripening. If you don't want if you don't want them just to be random acts of uh, fortune or misfortune, and if they don't feel like that to you, then sometimes you do have to have a, more, a broader scale to work on. This same map, even at the time of the Buddha, or just shortly after his death was seen as a, a trillion life possibility, like why, this, why we have trillions of lives spilling forward. It was seen as um, forces working within one life. And it was even seen as forces working within uh, just moments of consciousness, how several moments of consciousness interrelate was seen at, um, uh, as the workings of dependent origination. So it's just a matter of scale in some aspects. And we're, if we treat it psychologically today and then ask questions about it being a multiple life, unless you have multiple lives that you remember and you can see whether this is true or that, it ends up being more of a faith intuition about the multiple life model. But we can actually track this on the more psychological level, either moment by moment and watch ourselves be happy. And then a longing comes up and we start chasing the longing and we get very caught in it or we let it go again. Um, so it can be very immediate, or it can be a long arc um, over you know, several decades. These types of desires led to this type of outcome. That's, that's the range where we can probably track this, is more on the, the personal level. Does that help? Yeah. Let's take uh, one more question and then take a little break. When you first started, you mentioned that the 12 links were not in the original teachings. I'm just wondering how they came about, and, and uh, was it the Buddha later uh, who developed them, or was it developed in another way? The, um, the 12 links... Oops. The 12 links are in the original teachings, but making them into a circle where you take the bottom link and the top link and you bend them around and make them conditional 
Thanks. That comes later. But the 12 links are in many of his teachings. Thank you. Yeah. There is one, there are a couple of sittas that infer you can do that, but he didn't do that often himself. When he was talking about this, it was just 12 links up and down. What's that? <laughs> didn't have PowerPoint, exactly. He didn't. I'm sure he would have gone there. Let's take a 10-minute silent break just to rest our bodies. We'll come back and we'll do more practice, um, silent practice together.